welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the Gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the City of Lagos and beyond renewed by the Gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. Good morning, church. Um, today's Bible reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. When I'm done with the reading, I would say, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond with thanks be to God. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well, who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. What is up, City Church? So first and foremost, um, Pastor Femi got a chance to uh, express his gratitude for, for me and my wife, Jessica, but um, it's really hard for me to, to stress how much I really honor and look up to and admire your pastor, Pastor Femi, and his wife, Tosin. Please give them a round of applause. Uh, not many cities rival or exceed the, um, the energy, the pace, the impact and the beauty that New York is, and Lagos is one of those cities, and to have uh, a pastor like Pastor Femi and his wife Tosin in this beautiful city that you all are, are sharing with us this weekend, uh, we are extremely grateful for that. And uh, we are incredibly grateful to be partners with City Church to, um, to, to be celebrating from afar all that the Lord has done and is doing in this church and in the city and we are just getting started. The story of your church is just beginning and God is, is, is doing some amazing things. So we are incredibly grateful to be here. My brother, thank you so much for the invitation. And uh, we were joking, we, uh, our visa is for two years, so we're gonna come back. Whether y'all want us or not, we're gonna pull up, a, we're gonna pull up on y'all next year um, because we are so grateful to, to be here and to enjoy this beautiful city. And uh, we're loving it so far, and we're so excited to be here. So let me pray for us before we hop into today's word. 
Uh, God, our good and gracious Father, Lord, you know exactly what we have come into this space today with on our hearts. Lord, you know the concerns, you know the doubts, you know the fears, you know the joys, you know the celebrations, you know it all. So Lord, as unable as I am on my own strength, I come to you, Lord, asking that you would give us all ears to hear your word, eyes to see in the scripture what you want us to see, and a heart that is capable of receiving your words to us. Lord, give me proficiency of speech to be clear in communication, to communicate your precious and beautiful word today. Holy Spirit, would you be in this place? Would you minister to us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. So one of the most interesting things about language is that you can go to different places and say the same word, but that word will mean different things in those two different places. So my wife and I got here on Friday, and our first day here, we realized that what we call traffic in New York City <laughs> is not what you think about when you think about the word traffic. In New York, when I think about traffic, I think that if it's supposed to take me 20 minutes, and it took me 25, I was in traffic. <laughs> and up until this week, I would have confidently called that traffic. But when I was hanging out this weekend with some of your amazing leaders here at this church, Palume and Emmanuel, and they told me some, not all, some of the stories, the horror stories of Lagosian traffic, where a 15-mile trek could take you five or six hours, it was like I was born again. <laughs> I said, I will never call New York City traffic traffic again. I will call it congestion or a slowdown or something else. That's when I realized that not everyone who says the same word means the same thing. So that's only one word. Uh, our vocabularies are full of words that we say pretty regularly, but we don't, they don't always mean what we think they mean. Now, one of the words I've come across like that is a word named called grace. You've heard the word grace. And as I say the word grace, many of you have a concept in your mind of what grace means. But I want to submit to you this morning that for, in the same way that uh, I've misunderstood the word traffic, uh, not everybody that says the word grace means the same thing. So grace is one of the most important realities in life with God. So as we are in this series on introducing the Son of God, looking at Jesus in the book of Mark, I came across this scripture and as I read it, what jumped out the pages to me is that Jesus is defining for us what grace truly is. And so it's going to help us to get a more robust and well-rounded understanding of the word today. So I want to reread the scripture very briefly since it's a short passage so that we could all be on the same page as we journey along. So Mark 2, 13 through 17, it says, Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then, passing by, he saw Levi. Some uh, uh, Gospels say this is Matthew. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus 
and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. This week, as I was writing and reflecting on what real grace is, the fullness of that word grace on what I hope you walk away with, uh, a number of things jumped out to me. And the first is this, grace is offered, it's never earned. Grace is always offered to you. It is by definition something you can never earn. So verse 14, where we see Jesus passing by, uh, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you'll see that a tax collector in, uh, in these days was something that was not just a profession that people did. A tax collector was a traitor to his own people. So the children of Israel, the cho God's children, the Jewish people, they were under uh, Roman rule and Roman oppression. And there were certain Jews that would collect taxes to give to the oppressing government. And they would not just routinely take what was demanded by the government so that they can continue their oppression over their people, they would take more. And they were notoriously known as people who were corrupt and they were working against their own people's interest. And listen to this, as Levi was sitting at the tax booth, he was doing the very thing, collecting the very taxes that would have made him a hated person in all of his town. Now, I haven't been in Lagos long enough to know what a, what a, what a perfect equivalent would be for you, but who was a person that you would look at while they're doing what they're doing that you would say, this person is as far from righteousness as humanly possible. And scripture says, while they were sitting there doing that, Jesus comes to him and extends this offer for him to follow him. Now, this is incredibly important because a lot of us think that what it means to follow Jesus is that somehow we approach our relationship with Jesus like you would your professor or your boss. And we make our spiritual life into a journey of a never-ending pursuit of trying to earn God's grace, like God is an investor. But this will never lead to the type of relationship that God wants to have with us. First and foremost, you will never feel settled in your walk with God if you feel like the grace that God gives you is earned. And here's why, a couple of reasons. Number one, all of our accomplishments are fragile. If God's grace depends on you earning it, how do you know that you've done a good enough job? Let me ask you all a question. The right side is not talking to me. Let me talk to the left side real quick. Can you think of a day? Can you think of one day where you've done a perfect job, where you could not have done better? If you can't even think about one day that you could not have done a better job, then imagine a lifestyle in which every single day your life is in the courtroom of did I do enough to earn from God this day? And even if, by chance, you happen to hit a grand slam, that's a baseball terminology, y'all don't watch baseball in Nigeria. Even if you happen to score six goals, is that a, uh, that one day? All of your accomplishments are temporary. That one day of success will not carry you forever. 
And so it is incredibly difficult for us to thrive in our relationship with God, to understand what grace truly means unless we understand that grace is always offered to us. It is never earned. Don't believe me. Listen to the scriptures. Uh, Romans 5 and 6, it says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the perfect people who did it all right. Christ died for the ungodly. Ephesians 2, and says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says, we too, so don't, not pointing fingers at other people. He says, we too all uh, previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who was rich in mercy, because of his great love for that he had for us, he made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You were saved by grace. Grace is always offered to you. It is never earned. Now, here's why this is so important to you, that you understand grace in this way. Uh, one of our mentors and someone I have a lot of affinity for, a man named Tim Keller, says, you cannot add to Christ without in inevitably subtracting from Christ. Meaning, if you try to add your own goodness to Jesus, that making God, your standing with God based on anything other than what Jesus has done, by essence, you're taking away from the fullness of his grace and what he offers to us. So years ago, my wife and I, we were celebrating one of our wedding anniversaries, and we went to one of the best restaurants in New York City, uh, it's one of these restaurants that it takes you forever to get a reservation. And we sat down at the restaurant, and it's one of those places you go to, and you're like, I'm not even going to look at the bill when it comes. I'm just going to sign it like this and pass it away, because this is something we do very rarely. And I was, like, really surprised and really interested, because when you first got there and they served you the food, there was no salt or pepper on the table. When they brought out the steaks, there was no steak sauce to add on to it. Because here's what the chef knew. The chef knew that what they had delivered from the kitchen was perfect. And if you add anything to it, you're going to mess it up. So when Jesus said, for example, that it is finished, he is saying that his death, burial, and resurrection is flawless. It is perfect. It is everything that we need for life and for salvation. And if you try to add anything to it, you be messing it up and taking away from it. I heard one theologian say that the only thing we add to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary in the first place. And so grace is something that is always offered, something that we can never earn. But there's also an another piece of this. The gospel is not opposed to your effort. Grace is not opposed to you working really hard, but it is opposed to you feeling like your hard work has earned it. And so grace is something that we need to fully understand that empowers us and fuels us for the work, for the life that God wants us to have. But grace is something that is always offered to us in the same way that Jesus offered it to, to Levi, but it is never earned. Now, here's why this is so important. Because the, the goal of what God wants to do in your life, the goal of what God wants to create in your life is not dutiful obligation. It is worship. 
I told our church a couple of weeks ago that I'm, I'm thinking about rebranding my name at the church and my title, not as lead pastor, but as the worship pastor. Not because I can sing, because my sister who was sitting next to me, if she heard me sing, you would know that I cannot sing my way out of a wet paper bag. I know nothing about music, but I, I have realized that over the years, the goal of my job is that to help people worship and grow in adoration to Christ. And it's impossible to, to love and to adore a God who makes you work for something. So grace is always offered to us. It is never earned. I heard an old preacher tell a story like this because this changes um, not just what you do in your life, but why you do it. Check this out. Listen, what you do is really important. Why you do it is even more important. An old preacher told the story that there was a king who ruled over everything in the land. And one day there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to the king and said, my lord, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was so touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king says, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth, and I want to give you acres of land freely as a gift so you can garden it uh, so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home celebrating. This beautiful king that he wanted to worship and adore for the things that the king was doing had blessed him with an enormous gift. But there was another man in the king's court who overheard all that was going on, and he said, if this is what someone can get for a carrot, imagine if I gave the king something better. The next day, this nobleman went before the king and he was leading this beautiful black stallion, this horse. He walked in with the horse and he bowed low and said, my lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will breed. Therefore, I wanted to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king recognized his motives and said, thank you, and took the horse and dismissed the man. The man was confused, so the king discerned on his way out. He says, come back, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. If you and I are not careful, our pursuit of God will miss the proper motivation of giving God love-filled worship in response to a good king who has given us his all in Jesus. Grace is offered. It is never earned. Number two, real grace is disruptive. Real grace is disruptive. Look at verse 14 with me. It says, then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax, tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, this text right here says a couple of things, and I, I just love how the writers are very clear to say that Levi was doing something. His life had been invested in a certain path. He was on a certain trajectory. When Jesus called him, he got up, left what he was doing, and went in a different direction. Jesus' grace that was offered to him also disrupted him. It dug him out of what he had been doing and put him on a different path. Uh, I don't know if there's any doctors in the house. Um, uh, one of the things that's interesting, if you like ever hang out with a doctor, particularly a doctor who's on call, a surgeon of some sort, is you never quite have their full attention. 
I don't know why doctors still use beepers. That is like an old technology. But even in New York City, they still have like beepers and they'll get paged because when they are on call, they always have to be attuning to the call. So you can be sitting down having a great time and their beeper can go off in the middle of a sentence. They will get up and walk away from you to go attend to another situation. And why is that? Because they have been called. What Jesus does here in this text is that Jesus is essentially letting us know what it looks like to be in relationship with him. This is what it means to be called. To be called doesn't mean that you're standing on a, mic standing on a platform with a microphone. To be called by the grace of Jesus means that he is handing you a paper, a pager. He is handing you a beeper. And your entire life now will be oriented around him and not the way that you were going to go on your own. Here's how you know that you are starting to be, that you are called and you are, uh, the Holy Spirit is working in your life, that when you start to find, willingly or not, a sense growing on you that Jesus has to be the most important thing in your life. And his relationship with you has to be the ultimate thing and everything else must take a back seat. That is what it means to be called by Jesus, to be called by his grace, that he has the sensor of, he has the sense of priority in your life. Now, I want to be really clear about this. Uh, this is not to say that you should quit your job and do nothing but sit at home and read the Bible and pray all day and never go out with friends and never have a relationship because Jesus is the only thing. Jesus is not, when, Jesus, when we say Jesus is the priority, we're not saying that he is the only thing in your life that you can't have a, a family and children and an employment. Uh, it's not about exclu exclusivity. It's about order. That Jesus would be the primary thing in your life and everything else in your life would filter through the person, the work of Jesus. That you would put everything through that lens. So my wife and I don't argue too much. Um, I like to say that we are good for two arguments a year, two good ones to get into. Uh, as long as we've had enough sleep, then, you know, most of the time things are good. Without sleep, pray for us. And literally every single time I get angry with her, there's always this nagging thing that hits me before I go to bed. This is God's daughter. Scripture tells me, whenever you stand to pray, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. So before I can bend my knees down to get to the ground to say my evening prayers, if Jesus is the priority for me, I have to take him seriously. Even if my wife is wrong, which she's only been wrong three times in the 10 years of being together, I have to forgive her. Now, what it means for Jesus to be disruptive into your life meaning, means that Jesus works his way into your relationship. And what Jesus does is he turns you in different directions than you would, automatic, than you would automatically go on your own. So if Jesus is my aim, I have to allow his grace to disrupt me from what I would have already done on my own. Now, one of the biggest tests to whether or not you are following the real Jesus of the Bible or you are following the Jesus of your imagination, here's what the Jesus of my imagination does. He likes everything I like. He just wants me to be a little bit nicer. Like the Jesus in my imagination, me and him are on the same page about everything. But the Jesus of, the, of Scripture, he disrupts me. He calls me to walk in different paths, and I would not go on my own. You know, one of my jobs as a pastor, as a preacher, is to help people to see who Jesus is 
in reality and for us to really not water down who he says he is. And then it's up to us if we want to decide to follow this Jesus or not. But I haven't been in Lagos long enough to know fully your culture, but in New York City, for example, a lot of us in New York want to make Jesus out to be something that he really wasn't. So check this out. Have you ever thought about Jesus's last days and we're coming up on Holy Week pretty soon and the life and the trial of Jesus? I don't know how many of you have studied that. So at the end of Jesus's life, Jesus was on trial and scripture says that it was uh, in Matthew 27, 15, it was the custom for them to release one prisoner. So it says at the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner that they wanted. So the people had the decision. They had the power in their hands that they could release a prisoner. Jesus was a prisoner that they could have released. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, who is it you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus called the Christ? Luke adds another detail to this in his gospel. Luke says in Luke 23, 18 and 19, he says, then they all cried out together, take this man away, Jesus, but release Barabbas to us. And then Luke gives us a detail about Barabbas' life. He had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Why would they choose Barabbas over Jesus? One of the things that I've realized in the course of pastoring and being a Christian is that Jesus had to be incredibly controversial for them to choose him over Barabbas. And here's what I've come to conclude in my own life. He was crucified because people would rather live with a street thug than someone claiming to have authority over their entire lives. Barabbas was a safer choice. Jesus was disruptive. Now, we love Jesus, Jesus that, that, that answers our prayers, Jesus that is the good shepherd, um, Jesus that, that has laid down his life for us, but none of us, very few of us often want Jesus to truly be the Lord of our lives and to disrupt us. Jesus' real grace is disruptive. Check this out. Here's what I have come to know for sure in New York City that might apply to Lagos as well. In New York City, there is a lot of what I like to call cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity is adding Jesus to the life that you have already chosen. It's basically saying, Jesus, I'm going to do this no matter what. And I'm going to add a little bit of Jesus like some syrup on top of some ice cream. And I want you to bless it. Grace is disruptive. Levi was sitting at the tax booth. Jesus uprooted him from his life and put him on a different trajectory. His life would never be the same because of his life with Jesus. One of the great litmus tests for our life and our faith is, have we allowed Jesus to take us on a different course than we would already gone on our own? And if Jesus is not disrupting you, you might need to reconsider who you're following. So number one, real grace is always offered, it's never earned. Number two, real grace is disruptive. And number three, real grace, it doesn't just forgive us, it restores us. In verse 15, G scripture says, while he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. 
Now, one of the things that's really interesting if you study the Bible is that um, food and intimacy go hand in hand. Food and relationship went together. So it was not just that Jesus was grabbing um, some food with, with some people. Jesus was reclining with these people, and he was in relationship with them. What this lets us know a little bit, and this is why later we'll see why the tax collectors were so angry with Jesus. What grace seeks to do in your life is not just forgive you for the wrong that you've done. Like, if, if, that's, what, if that's what grace was, just forgiveness, it would be amazing for God to not hold our sins against us. That would be incredible. But grace is better than that. Forgiveness, by its very definition, is just a release from wrongdoing that says you can go without being punished. But grace communes. Grace reclines. Grace does relationship. In my former uh, profession, I was an attorney, and I practiced uh, law for about eight years. And my specialty in law was um, uh, juvenile delinquency defense work, and I did some criminal defense uh, attorney work. And when I became a pastor, uh, I stopped practicing law, or I stopped charging people for law, at least. This is not a, 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 a permission to ask me for free legal advice, either. And uh, the only cases that I took were for family members and friends who, who needed me. And my wife and I have a, a, a beloved member of our community, someone we have adopted as our nephew, and he has a very troubled story. Uh, if we were to tell his story, it would, uh, not one dry eye would be in this house. And so we've taken to him and we've, we've loved him and we've seen the pain in his life over the years and the pain that has been compounded because of the terrible decisions that he's made. I don't know if you know anybody like that, that you wish that you can help them, but they just continue to make terrible decisions with their life. So he got arrested, and he was actually living with us at the time, and then he got arrested again, and I'll never forget calling the, what they call it in the states, that we have a district attorney who represents the, the state. I called the district attorney's office, and I'm pleading with the district attorney saying, would you please just give him another chance? And I went through this brother's whole story about his time of abuse, of foster care, of all of the horrors of his life. And against all odds, the district attorney said, you know what? I'll give him another chance. All he has to do is community service. So in New York City, they make you do about 10 hours of community service and then his charges were gonna go away. We get to court three or four months after, the, uh, after the, the initial deal was done, and I'm there smiling, happy, like, oh man, how did your community service go? And I look over to him, he said, I didn't do it. And I was, yes, I had that same reaction that y'all had. And the judge was calling cases in front of us, and I was watching the judge go through case by case and every person who had not done their community service, the judge was sentencing, sentencing, sentencing them to jail on the spot. You didn't do your community service? 30 days. The judge was uh, throwing out 30 days like it was, she was passing it around like it was candy. I sat there in my seat and I, I was praying. I said, Lord, I don't know what more jail would do to this brother right now. He already was in such a fragile place. 
that I was afraid that him going back to jail, we would lose him forever, that we would lose who he was and who, and the, the slow progress he was making, that it would be done forever. So they called our case. I walked up to the judge, and I was so nervous that I was just stuttering. And I, I asked the judge for mercy. And by the mercy of God, the judge let us go. I grabbed him out of that courtroom so fast. We just, she asked us what date in the future. I said, that one works, Your Honor. And I, I grabbed him by the collar, and we ran out of the courtroom before the judge changed her mind. Now listen, as beautiful as it is to be released from wrongdoing, we didn't go to the judge's house that night for dinner. Forgiveness just says you can go without being punished. Grace says you can come. Grace says I, you can come and recline and be with me. The essence of the gospel, the essence of what Jesus has come to do is to restore the right relationship between us and God the Father so that there would be no more separation between us and him and we can call him Abba, Father. Not that he has released us as a judge, but that he has accepted us as his own. Grace communes with us. Grace doesn't, doesn't just tolerate you. Grace reclines with you. Grace is not in a rush to get you out to the next person. And so real grace doesn't just forgive. It lingers. It relaxes. It reclines. And it restores. You know, one of the greatest works that you will have to do, uh, for everybody in here who is a Christian, the greatest work that you have to work to do is to believe, to trust in this grace that God has given us that gives us access to him. In John 6, disciples and people come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, what works must we do? And Jesus says, here is the work of God, that you believe, that you relax in the one that he has sent. So grace doesn't just um, forgive us, it, it restores us. And so grace, as the story goes on, in verse 16, grace also offends our self-righteousness. So all the self-righteous people on the left, you're going to be offended right now. <laughs> grace offends our self-righteousness. Verse 16, it says, When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Throughout Scripture, there is nothing that offends self-righteous people more than grace. Now, for all of us, in order for us to understand grace, we first have to take a good, hard look at our self-righteousness. Now, here's the thing. You don't have to be religious to be self-righteous. Some of the most self-righteous people I know are not religious people in my life, but we all have this belief that because I do better, God looks at me better. And if you and I operate in the economy of merit, we will always be offended by grace. And one of the best ways for you to understand that you don't understand grace is when you are offended when God is gracious to people who are not doing as well as you are. Isn't it interesting how grace always offends you when it's poured out on other people but never when it's poured out on you? The Bible over and over again paints a picture of grace and 
it is the opposite of the economy of merit in terms of who deserves what. There's one story in scripture where Jesus talks about being a shepherd. And he says that he is the kind of shepherd that if he had 100 sheep and one walked away, he would leave the 99 sheep unattended to just go after that one. No other shepherd would do that. Why would you leave 99 vulnerable in pursuit of one wayward? We would have the problem with that unless we were that one sheep who was drifted away. There's another story about Jesus where he tells a parable, a story about people working at a vineyard, that there is this landowner that picks up people from different times of the day to work in his vineyard. Some people at six o'clock in the morning, some at nine o'clock in the morning, some at noon, and then others at 5 p.m., just an hour before the workday ends. Then this landowner lines everybody up in visibility of each other. And he lines up and then every, he gives everyone the same amount. The workers were angry because they got there at six o'clock in the morning. They did work all day. These other people who just got there get the same thing. And here's what the landowner says to them. Are you angry with me? Because I'm generous. There's another story about an older woman who does not have much money. And there are all these rich people giving and offering these big amounts, but she puts two pennies in the offering plate. And scripture says that her small offering was worth more to God than huge sums. What does all of this tell us about God? One sheep gets more attention than 99. One hour workers get the same as 12 hour workers. A widow's two pennies are worth more than huge sums. Check this out. Grace is terrible math. And as long as you and I operate in the economy of merit, that we should get what we deserve, we will always be frustrated by grace. The heart of the Christian message is that none of us get what we deserve. And that's because he made the one, Jesus, who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Grace offends our self-righteousness. Last point. Grace calls us to embrace our inability. So real grace is offered, it's never earned. Real grace is disruptive, it will change the trajectory of your life. Grace doesn't just forgive, it restores. Grace offends our self-righteousness and by God's grace, thank God it does, because it helps us to understand it better. And grace calls us to embrace our inability. Look at verse 17 with me. It says, when Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. The only thing that you and I need to access Jesus is a firm awareness of our inability. And the only thing that precludes us from God is self-righteousness. One of the challenges that you see all throughout scripture is that over and over again, Jesus is having these confrontations with the Pharisees. Why is Jesus always having these confrontations with the Pharisees? It is because they believed themselves to be well and had no need for Jesus. Scripture says, in our pride, we have no room for God in Psalms. And so 
in order for us to access, to make room for God in our life, to have access to a living, thriving relationship with Jesus, what we need is to embrace our inability. We do that in a number of ways. One is like the prayer of confession, the beautiful prayer of confession that you all read here, where we can regularly confess to God that, God, it's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's not my mother or my brother, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And there is something beautiful that happens when we stop comparing ourselves to other people and we embrace our own need for Jesus. We see that without him, we would be nothing. Without him, we would be lost. I've once heard it said that on the road of comparison, there are only two exits, pride or discouragement. On the road of comparison, there are only two exits, pride where you think you're doing better than someone or discouragement where you don't think you measure up. Both of those run counter to grace. Grace calls us to embrace our inability and to know that Jesus has paid it all. I once heard a beautiful story that talked about the beauty of what it meant for Jesus to give his life for the church. And it's our job to embrace that without Jesus, we would not have life. Without Jesus, our lives would crash and burn. Uh, there's a story about an airplane crash. On August 16th, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed just after taking off from the Detroit airport in America, killing 155 out of 156 people. One person survived, a four-year-old from Tempe, Arizona named Cecilia. Cecilia survived because even as the plane was falling, Cecilia's mother's Paula Chican unbuckled her own seatbelt, got down on her knees in front of her daughter, wrapped her arms around the body of her daughter Cecilia and would not let her go. Nothing could separate that child from her mother's love, not tragedy or disaster, not the flames or the crash that followed, not height nor depth, neither life nor death. Such is the love of our Savior has for us. He left heaven, lowered himself for us, covered us with the sacrifice of his own body on the cross and gave his body to save us. Nothing in all of creation, nothing in all of creation, nothing in all of creation can separate us from his love. And the way we come to realize that and to know that is when we embrace our inability, when we cling to the old rugged cross, that we can find our salvation. And so in just a moment, I want to end us in a prayer that allows us, that ushers us into embracing our inability so that we can access the real grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus, you know those of us in here who may have never made a profession of faith to follow you. We, we might have been trying to be good on our own. We might have been trying to clean ourselves up on our own enough to make ourselves acceptable to you. Jesus, we now see that your grace to us is offered, but it will never be earned. So right now, Lord, anybody in this room, I pray for those of us in this room who have not yet made that declaration of faith, 
because we've been trying to earn it. We've misunderstood grace. Right now, I want you to begin to pray to receive the grace that God has for you on the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, there are other people in this room like myself who have been with you for years or for decades. And Jesus, we have let our thriving, vibrant relationship with you devolve into a series of work-based efforts that leaves us feeling dissatisfied at the end of the day. We do not worship you in spirit and truth because we are always working for your acceptance. Jesus, help us to see the beauty of what John saw in 1 John 3. Oh, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. So Jesus, renew in us a new affection, a new awareness that you have made us alive, that you have made us your children. And it is all by your grace. Jesus, as you disrupt us this week with your commands in our lives, help us to hold on, trusting, knowing that you have given us everything already. And it is a small exchange to exchange the smallness of our life for the life that you have called us to live. Holy Spirit, gives us, give us power to lay down sins and patterns that have held us back Give us confidence to follow you boldly. We ask this all in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, we hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it, rating this podcast, and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at City Church Lagos. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.